Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? So glad to be with you once again here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I pray that you're blessed. I pray that you are hungry for God's Word today as we dive into another uh, portion of the life of Jesus Christ. So today is podcast 74, and the title is Five Warnings for Christians. Now, to bring you up to speed, remember Jesus left Bethany, go back to Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42, And he began teaching his disciples about prayer. They had asked him about prayer. And so we saw that in chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And then he's approached by a Pharisee who wants Jesus to dine with him. Now, this is where we get these six woes, where Jesus rebukes them. And he turns his attention to warn his disciples then of five key things, hence the title, Five Warnings for Christians, here in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 59. So we got a big portion to cover But the first warning that we have on today's podcast is hypocrisy. The second is covetousness. The third is fear and worry. And then carelessness and ignorance is the fifth. These are five things, my friends, as we explore Luke chapter 12, that I pray that the Holy Spirit would penetrate our heart, that he would draw the sin out of our lives, that we would live holy and pure before him. Now, much of what we are going to be discussing today is covered back in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus had covered almost two years prior in Galilee. But again, as was very common in that culture, Jesus was very repetitive in his teaching. So let me dive right in. What I'm going to do is each warning, we're going to highlight each portion of each warning, and then we'll give some commentary. So let's jump right into Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the meantime... When so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, and he began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, a couple of things here is if you see here that this in Greek, that the thousands of people in the Greek, when you look at the text, it actually depicts tens of thousands of people. So can you imagine that? So just put that in your mind. That Jesus is, 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 is being met by all of these people that are gathering to listen to him. That's why it says trampling one another. So it was like a massive mob. And he turns to his disciples and he says, beware of the leaven. So literally this word beware here in the Greek means put your mind to understand. And when he's talking about leaven, it's implying the hip, hypocritical behavior. And he references to the Pharisees. Because he says they're hypocritical, they're play acting, they're pretending to be something they're not. So Jesus openly rebukes the Pharisees and the lawyers, remember back in Luke 11, 37 through 54. And then he uses this as an opportunity, which I always love about Jesus. When there's a certain situation pertaining religiosity, if you will, he turns to his disciples and he warns them about the same thing. Meaning, even though I'm addressing the Pharisees with this particular sin, doesn't mean that you don't have it in your own lives as well. So he's telling his disciples now that they need to be cautious about hypocrisy. Now, when Jesus mentions leaven, the Jews knew this to imply evil. Go back to Exodus 12, 15 through 20. So hypocrisy, he's saying, is like leaven. It only takes a little bit to spread, to spoil, to sour the whole thing. 
So Jesus was revealing the corruption of the Pharisees. You see this back in Matthew 16, 6 through 12 and Mark 8, 14 through 21. Now notice in verse 2, he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So previously, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs. Remember that? He said that they appear to be holy, yet they were dead inside. So what he was implying here was this hypocritical living, people are full to think, right? You're fooling them to think that you are above everyone else, that you are living such a, a good life. You think about today where a lot of times people take pictures of themselves, you know, worshiping or doing their devotions or highlighting it from that. And, and, and we can have the appearance of thinking, man, these people are so righteous, you know, they're so amazing or taking pictures of themselves on a mission trip or whatever. But let's say that their whole intent of putting it out there is to show off. Well, they just destroy the whole purpose of what they were doing in the first place. It's really not about the Lord and his people. It's about, you know, showing your friends and everybody else how good you are. And that's what he's saying here is that they are pretending to be something they're not. And he says their hypocritical living will eventually be found out. They will. And, and as a result, by the way, they will be judged by that. Now, he says in verse 3, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms, that's in storerooms, shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So if things that are covered will be revealed in verse 2, then verse 3 here will come to pass, meaning God's judgment will fall upon people. You may think that right now, like think about people that are in sin, that are leaders, let's say, that are preaching from the pulpit. And I get this asked a lot. When people say, well, how can this person continue to do what they're doing? Why isn't God doing anything about it? I oftentimes refer to this particular passage to remind them that the day of judgment will come someday. And I also believe that God's judgment is already upon them to some degree. Now, if you look at Acts 17, verse 31, when Luke recorded the words of Paul, when he says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness— by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now you can go to Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, about talking about being a lamp and being that witness. That's what God is saying here. He wants us to be that witness, to be that light, and to be, and for us to be reminded that hypocrisy, we may cover it up sometimes or pretend that it's something that it really isn't. But the reality is we will be judged at some point. And that's why in verse 4 he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now, here's what's interesting about this verse. Remember, hypocritical living is always about what people think, right? It's always about this perception that you want to give off. So you're focusing so much more on man than you are with God. Now, when we do that, we focus more about the repercussions, right? Or the consequences that are associated with that when it comes to man. Jesus is saying, you don't need to be concerned about people who can kill the body. You need to be concerned way more about that. Remember, the Pharisees were seeking to kill Jesus and they're growing threats. They were trying to intimidate the disciples, trying to break up, if you will, the scheme that they felt that, the, that Jesus and the disciples were doing. But Jesus is turning to his disciples and he's saying, look, I'm not afraid. You're not to be afraid. I have control in these circumstances. These people may think they have control, but they don't. Because remember, as a Jew at the core, Proverbs 29, verse 25, which is still true to this day as followers of Christ, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
So we're to find our security in the Lord, not in man. So in verse 5, when he says, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So it's better to fear God who has a power over one's eternal destination. So then in verses 6 through 8, when Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What Jesus is saying here is that man brings fear and death while God offers love and forgiveness. See, this is the contrast Jesus sets forth for his disciples to understand. If he knows about the sparrows, if he knows about animal living, if he knows about the agricultural needs in the world, then he will certainly not forget the needs that his children who are made in his image have. And he says he will comfort them in the midst of trials. But there has to be an acknowledgement, what he's saying here in verses 8 and 9. There has to be an allegiance. There has to be a relationship associated He's challenging his disciples that you need to take a side. You can't just live for man, fear man, and then expect the blessings of God to come in your life. You either acknowledge him without shame or you reject him without honor. And those you and I know, my friends, who denied Jesus, they're essentially rejecting the way of salvation. And so now here in verse 10, Jesus takes it a step further. He says, and everyone who speaks a word against, meaning a reference to the Son of Man, will be forgiven, meaning their guilt will be removed. But the one who blasphemies, who reviles, who slanders against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So this statement here reinforces what he said in verses 8 and 9. You see, at this time, this is the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is writing this right now, or saying this, I should say, this was taking place at that time when he is in the ministry. And the Pharisees, remember, they believed the Spirit of God, right? But they didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was working through Jesus because they said that you have the spirit of Beelzebub. So they're saying that you're associated with Satan. And so they denied his power and they denied his divinity. One commentator writes, God did not judge the nation immediately. Instead, Jesus prayed for them as he hanged on the cross. Then God sent the Holy Spirit who ministered to the apostles and other believers in the church. This was the last opportunity for the nation, and they failed by rejecting the witness of the Spirit. Luke 12, 11 through 12 was fulfilled during the first chapters of Acts when the message went to the Jew first. Israel's third national sin was the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, after which the message went out to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and then the Gentiles in Acts 10. Note that Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. I do not believe that the sin against the Holy Spirit is committed by people today as it was by Israel centuries ago. I believe the only unpardonable sin today is a final rejection of Jesus Christ according to John 3.36. The Spirit of God witnesses through the Word and it is possible for sinners to reject that witness and resist the Spirit. But the Spirit bears witness to Christ so the way people treat the Spirit is the way they treat the Son of God, end quote. So when you look at verses 11 through 12, just like the commentator was talking about, and it says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, though that is true today, 
Jesus was speaking specifically to what the disciples are going to be facing in time to come. Now, that word defend there is a term that we get apologetics, which means to make a case, to bring vindication, right? So when an accusation comes, you give a defense, you provide evidence, proof to get you out of a situation or an accusation that someone's accusing you of. So he says, when you're there to to have to defend what you believe, don't rely on yourself. Remember, he was saying earlier, don't trust man, don't, don't fear man, but fear God, trust the Lord for security. Now he's saying here in verse 12 is, rely on the Holy Spirit. So believers in Christ don't have to worry about defending ourselves in the midst of opposition. So think about whatever you're faced with right now, my friends. You don't have to worry about getting it right. You need to trust the Lord. So as time went on, as you and I know, when we look through the book of Acts, we see many of the disciples of Christ. We see the apostles as they expanded the kingdom of God on earth through, you know, developing and starting church after church and spreading the word of God and writing the epistles, etc. They were persecuted for their faith, but the Holy Spirit gave them words. The Holy Spirit caused them to be brave like when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. And that's what he's talking about, a steadfast faith. So that's the first warning about hypocrisy. Now let's look at the second warning about covetousness. This is found now in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So here, after Jesus warns about hypocrisy in the crowd, remember, people are mobbing Jesus. There's tens of thousands of people. And so this man somehow gets in front of all these people to Jesus And he feels it's so important to try to get Jesus to side with him because he was having some type of dispute uh, with his family. Now, if you go back in Jewish law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, the elder son received a double portion. That means two-thirds of the inheritance was given to the eldest, while the younger only a third. So something was happening probably with his brother, and he's looking to Jesus so that Jesus can side with him so that he can take advantage of it and get more money. But notice in verse 14, Jesus says to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter? Meaning who made me a divider over your portions? So even though Jesus as a teacher, he could have gotten involved in matters of inheritance. Notice he had no interest to get involved in civil materialistic legal disputes. Why? Because he was there to give his life. He was there to show people to the way to God. And so that's why in verse 15, Jesus says to him, take care and be on guard. Meaning Watch over closely against all covetousness, which just in the Greek means a strong desire for more. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to introduce a parable. And in this parable, he's going to expose the root problem that these two brothers are having in this, you know, disputing over inheritance. And it's a lesson that he wanted them to know, the crowd to know, and the truth that still carries Uh, all these years later to our lives, and that is that life does not consist in storing up a lot of wealth to the point of greed. So this is a valuable lesson on not just greed, but also that when we do that, my friends, we tend to neglect the very things of God. Now, God blesses us with what we have in in the temporal sense, but the eternal perspective is far greater. So in verse 16, he says, and he told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain in my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods 
laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So here we see the rich man, he spent all of his time, his entire life was about building up resources. He used a talent that he had to basically satisfy his own greed. And he thought it was more important, right, to invest in his future life than to actually take what God has blessed him with, what he had worked so hard to achieve, to give back, if you will. But he wanted to store up even more, so he was never satisfied. So you think about that, you would arrive at a certain point to say, man, if I just make my first million, I'm going to be completely content and satisfied. And then you get there and you realize, you know, everyone around me has $5 million or they've achieved $10 million and I'm just not good enough. And so then you continue to pursue that and you get to that point, let's say, and it's still never enough. That's what Jesus is saying with this man. And when once he realized that he didn't have enough, right, he wasn't happy really in the end. Well, guess what? In verse 20, Jesus says to him, you fool, meaning you foolish one, this night your soul is required, it's demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So God's response to this man's approach was to call him a fool. His life only consisted of achieving more wealth. But upon sudden death, he realized his earthly value had no eternal weight. Again, Jesus touched on this in Matthew 6, 19 through 21 on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for your own time, you can also cross-reference 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. So the second warning is about covetousness. And now the third warning that we have for us is in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. And this is about worry and anxiety. This is found in verses 22 through 34. Let me read here, beginning in verse 22. And Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious, do not worry, have apprehension about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and body more than clothing. So here in verses 22 through 23, Jesus immediately transitions. Remember, he talked about hypocrisy, he talked about covetousness. And now I love this because he wants to now focus on worry and anxiety to follow those two other warnings because they are inseparable. Remember, he reminded the crowd and the, the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount when he was discussing about storing up treasures in heaven and not letting worry consume your life in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Well, he's reminding the crowd now in front of him with his disciples at hand to not be so fixated on food and clothing. Remember, he started the whole thing about not focusing so much, being so fixated on what man thinks and fearing man and the consequences you know, related to those things. If you don't do this, then so-and-so is not going to reward your bless your be your friend. And he continues to extenuate that concern when it comes to food and clothing. Oftentimes, we purchase things, we possess things to show off, to be accepted. Now, eating, drinking, and clothing, remember, they are the trio that represent what we need here on earth. So it's hard not to focus, obviously, on these three things. Jesus is saying they're not important. It's not like they're not important. Of course they are. What he's saying is we're not to let them consume us. They don't make us. Our identity is not in the kind of food we eat and the clothing that we wear, where we live, if you will. You know, we live in a time of identity politics, and that just literally just means people say, you know, your zip code, where you grew up, defines who you are. And so then you take that and you apply that into the political spectrum of the world. Jesus is saying, no, that's not it at all. 
what's important is is the eternal perspective that we have and how we utilize the things that we have on earth because of that eternal perspective. So the more you and I trust the Lord and the more that we look to store treasure in heaven, the less you and I will fret and you and I will worry about what we don't have on earth. Verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. So remember before he talked about sparrows. Now he's talking about ravens. He says, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are they than the birds? So if God provides the birds of the air, he will certainly provide for what? His children. So the world and everything in it belongs to God. That's the point. We oftentimes want man's acceptance, and yet what can man really give us? Nothing. And yet we neglect not just God, not just his provision, but for who he is. And the more we ponder that, we reflect on that and have that eternal perspective, the more the blessings will come and the more content and the less worry and, dep- and depression we will face. Because in verse 25, Jesus says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Verse 26 says, If then you were not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So worrying about life will not add any growth, Jesus is saying, or give length of your life. Meaning it's not going to bring more quality, quite the opposite. The more we try to possess, the more stress comes based on that. And the more stress, the more anxiety, which are root causes for so many illnesses. Just examine your own life right now as you and I are reading this, my friends, or people in your life that you know are so consumed to to try to achieve a certain status in life. They're not content. And then focus on the people in your life who are content. And notice that when we are content in all things, that is a great remedy for stress, not just popping pills all the time, not just thinking if I could just go on vacation, not just thinking if I could just get this raise, I'll be more content. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians, he talked about his life. He talked about his challenges in the first epistle, but in the second one, he displayed a life of contentment. He said in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And then in verses 27 and 28, he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So we see here that although Solomon was the richest man alive, he's saying not even his best robe was as beautifully arrayed than when you see a flower. So what Jesus is saying is the, the people who worry too much about earthly things have an insufficient faith because they struggle to trust God to meet their needs. And when you don't trust the Lord for your, to meet your needs, you're not going to be a person who is going to be purposeful in life. You're just going to be a needy person who's going to be more self-consumed than self-sacrificial because you lack a relationship with God. Worry and wrong pursuits on earth are all strong indicators of a lack of faith in God. Remember, when you look at Scripture, there are many examples that we have before us of Jesus calling out a lack of faith. In Matthew 8, remember when the disciples were caught in a storm on the sea? And in the end, Jesus says, you guys have little faith. In Matthew 14, again, pertaining to water, Peter was walking on water. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He says, oh, you of little faith. In Matthew 16, When the disciples are arguing about having no bread, he says, you of little faith. Matthew 17, when the disciples were unable to cast out the demon is because they had a lack of faith. So in verse 29 and 30, when Jesus says, 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Verse 31, instead, this is the key. This is like the key verse in everything. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So God is omniscient. He knows all things. I love what Skip Isaac says. He says, quote, Since God's ability transcends my reality, it's best for me to bow at his immensity. God is always greater than our present knowledge of him. If God were small enough for our brains, he wouldn't be big enough for our needs, end quote. So what matters the most is pursuing God's kingdom and striving to be more like him each day. This word seek just means requires a faithful pursuit from those who have been given much. So when you look back at the man in the fig tree, for example, he was seeking fruit from it. We're told over and over again to seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And notice the term is used afterwards is that God will, it will be added to you, meaning it will be granted. God will give you provision. He'll give you more than what you need, not just physically, not just emotionally, but spiritually. See, that's God's economy. When we seek him, he blesses us in a way that you and I can't even fathom. And that's why he says in verse 32 here now, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give, meaning to grant you as a gift the kingdom. See, this is an amazing statement for several reasons. First, Jesus tells the crowd not to worry and not to fear. Why? Because God will protect them. He's like a shepherd. Remember Psalm 23? And second, Jesus tells his flock that you'll receive the kingdom. So it's not that you're just going to find a temporary relief by the streams of water. You're going to inherit a land, a place that you can't even fathom. And that's why he says here in verse 33, so sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the idea is not to put all your stock into the world, Jesus is saying here, but to live a sacrificial life, one that is motivated with an eternal perspective. Remember, he is the good shepherd. We are his sheep. We will inherit the kingdom. So let's pursue that, he's saying here on earth. That's a believer's true richness. Their true treasure is in the abundance and the blessings that come from God. And where your treasure is, this phrase, it's an expression that points out whatever is most important to you. So you, that's a great test, my friends, before we go to this, the fourth warning, is where is your heart at? If you're pursuing the riches of the world, that's where your heart is. That's, that's the idolatry. If it's pursuing a certain relationship or you want this certain job or you want to go to this certain school or you're neglecting God's word and you're pursuing, uh, the, 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 if you will, the counsel of man rather than the counsel of God, that's idolatry. You need to take your focus off of that, sell your possessions, he's saying, and turn to the Lord. Now, the fourth warning here in Luke 12, 35 through 48 is beware of carelessness. So we're going to look at carelessness and ignorance. So in verse 35, it says, stay dressed for action, meaning gird up the loins, be in a state of readiness and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting with expectancy for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and he knocks. Okay, so a couple things in this transition now with these three previous warnings to now carelessness. You think, what on earth is he talking about? Now, what Jesus does is he introduces in that culture at that time a servant and a master. 
Now, in that culture, if a servant isn't focused on the task at hand, isn't there to serve the master, well, then that is a, an, a worthless, if you will, servant. And so what Jesus is saying is if the servant isn't greedy or if the servant isn't consumed with himself, remember he was just talking about worry before, if you're not so consumed with yourself and you're more concerned and more alert and more attentive to serve your master, you're going to do a good job. It's the same thing, if you will, if we can give an illustration is when you go to a restaurant, you know the difference between a waiter or waitress who's there to serve, who represents the company, the restaurant well, and how they're there to be of service, right? And we tip them accordingly. Now, that's what Jesus is saying here. So the command given by Jesus is to be ready with a servant's heart because the master, he's saying, in this context, is going to return unexpectedly. So what you go when you go back to the previous warnings, when we live a life that's not hypocritical, when we live a life that is with faith, when we live a life that is about boldness in the Lord and living for his glory, that we're not going to be consumed with covetousness, we're not going to be consumed with worry and anxiety and depression, but we are awaiting his return expectantly, we will live a careful life, not a careless life, because it's about preparedness. When the master comes home, there's service there. The food is there. It's prepared, ready for him to partake of. This term, loins girded, is to fasten up the long outer garment. So it's always done before travel and work. So the, the loins are girded, meaning the servant is there to, to be ready to serve, to work hard. And not only that, but he uses, the, notice this phrase, the wedding feast. Now, what's interesting here, though, is that when Jesus was setting his eyes on Jerusalem, he knew that his death and his resurrection were coming. So this parable he's talking about here about the servant and the master, he's talking about ultimately, big picture, right? Remember in the Messiahship, about his future reign on earth. You can see that in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 29 through 30, Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. So he says here now in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and he will serve them. Now he does a twist. So we get it between a servant who is prepared and ready to serve the master versus one who's lazy and inconsiderate and careless. But what he does now here in verse 37, he says, the master comes to serve the servant. So what's astonishing is that in Jewish weddings, the bridegroom member and his bride, they were treated as a king and a queen. And yet here Jesus states that the bridegroom, the master, if you will, he returns home after the wedding feast. And rather than come expecting the servant to have done his job or her job, he comes to serve his servants who are waiting for him with anticipation. This speaks again of Christ's return someday and the reward that he will give his faithful subjects. So again, put this in context, eternal perspective to all the previous warnings and the last one we're going to talk about here on today's podcast. Now, one commentary writes, our Lord here promises that there will come a time when he will honor all of his slaves, meaning his believers, for their efforts in his behalf, a time when he himself will wait on them in glory. This promise originates in the Old Testament and is developed in the New Testament, which calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now here in verse 38, he says, if he comes in the second watch, that's between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m., or the third, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. That just means that they're always alert and they're doing what they're called to do. 
Because notice in verse 39, Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the the thief was coming or breaking in, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, meaning prepared, a sense of readiness, for the Son of Man is coming. That's the Greek word echome, means arriving in a particular state at an hour at the right time, a favorable fixed time that you do not expect, meaning you do not have certainty in. Now, what Jesus is saying, which goes back to when we, you and I explore other teachings theologically in, in the study of eschatology, uh, which means you know, the study of the end times and prophecy, no one knows when Jesus is going to return, meaning to snatch up, to take his church. You see this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. He says, for the Son of Man is coming. That's a title uh, that references to the Yahweh who will come and bring judgment. So then Peter responds when he's talking about this, right? He's given a parable, talking about a master servant, wedding feast, of course, in the context, talking about his messiahship. So Peter asks the question, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Jesus says to him in verse 42, who then is a faithful and wise, meaning who's the prudent, who's the thoughtful manager whom his master will set over, who would make ruler over his household? Now, what's interesting, by the way, my friends, this term household in the Greek means Therapeia. It's the word that we get, obviously, for therapy, meaning healing treatment. So it focuses on healing. It's like a medical service. And that I find that fascinating because he's saying, whom his master will set over his household, meaning he will, who will he put in charge who will bring healing? He will bring restoration through, obviously, in this case, Jesus's name. And that's us. That's us. We are in charge of God's household, and we are to bring people to him to, you know, for, for him to heal. So I think that's a beautiful illustration of the gospel that's hidden there in verse 42. So Jesus, he, he answers Peter here by telling him that you're not, I'm not speaking about the religious leaders. Remember, they're hypocrites. They're not awaiting me. They didn't even know that I've arrived, that the Messiah's come. He's, he's telling Peter that he's giving them this teaching for yes for them as they they carry out the gospel in the book of acts and until eventually obviously they, they're martyred but he's also talking about future believers who will neglect the rapture of christ as well so jesus is calling out his people and that's so relevant and so important for us to understand about being aware of carelessness that right now as we live we get so fixated in other things yeah we believe that christ is going to return someday but when was the last time we actually pondered that and it convicted us and it overwhelmed and it consumed our heart. So he's talking about the present and the future believers who choose to be wise in their service are so faithful saying Christ can come back today and I want to meet the needs of people around me. That's what he's talking about. Because notice in verse 43 and 44, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So those who remain faithful in Jesus's absence will receive a great reward. But he says in verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed and coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and to drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on that day and, and, and it is, when he least expects it and that hour he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now this all sounds like a mafioso thing going on here. But what he's saying is that the servant takes advantage. If he takes advantage of his position, and again, you take all those other previous warnings and he starts being greedy and feckless life and all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's a complete hypocrite pretending to be a faithful servant, but he isn't. Those who pretend to be servants of God that are not, they will be punished. That's what we're talking about, cut them in pieces. Literally, it just means to separate and cast them out as unfaithful people who will not receive their rewards. 
1 John 2, 28, and know, my little children, that we are to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. 47, 48, Jesus talks about the different levels of punishment that will come with the servants who failed to serve him with all of their heart. And so in verses 49 through 54, he talks about this division that he's going he's gonna to come and cast fire on earth and it would already be kindled. And so a lot of times when you look at certain commentaries, they get kind of confused about what in fact Jesus is talking about. When you look at verses 52 and 53, he's talking about a house that will be divided. And in verse 53, he says, you know, father against son and the son against a father. Jesus is speaking of his coming judgment of fire on earth and his death and burial that's going to come eventually. He referenced this in Luke chapter 11, 29 through 30 as a sign of Jonah. So his ministry will bring division and his people will will either repent of their sins or they won't. When you go back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, you know, you saw that uh, John the Baptist was talking about this coming baptism of fire and repentance that will come. In John chapter 9, 39 through 41, Jesus talked about the judgment that he came to bring into the world. So that's what he's talking about there. Now, only those disciples who are carefully serving him will get that. The ones who are being careless will neglect that. And that's the fourth warning. Our final warning now is in verses 54 through 59, and it has to do with ignorance. And what Jesus does to convey that, he says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower, a storm is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret, meaning regard as important as necessary, worthwhile, the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So in wrapping up his message on warnings, Jesus ends with the importance of knowing and understanding the times in which you, you and I are to live in. He rebukes the crowd for being more invested in insignificant signs than they were in the discerning, the discernment, if you will, of the coming kingdom. So this directly ties back into the rich man in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, an earthly mindset that is so focused on gaining more information, gaining more resources, more wealth to profit from, to gain more power, is completely foolish. But instead, a heavenly mindset is focused on affording an opportunity that will lead to more souls being saved. So when you and I are ignorant of the times that we live in, my friends, we will not make disciples. But when we are fixating and focused on what God has called us to do, God will use us. So those are five warnings that we learn here in Luke chapter 12 that you and I need to apply in our lives every day. So I pray that you get rid of hypocrisy, that you won't be covetous, that you will not be consumed with worry, that you'll be more careful in how you are to live and not careless, and that you will not be ignorant of the signs that you and I have and that we are in possession of because of Scripture, my friends. And we will not neglect to say, Lord, I'm seeing these signs and I want to live a more abundant life and I want to invest in the lives around me. My friends, that's why we do this podcast, to help you be grounded in God's word, that you will understand the times that you live in so that you can multiply God's kingdom before God takes us from this earth. So I pray this has been a blessing to you. I love you, my friends, and I'll see you on the next episode. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.